Welcome once again to the Marathon Bet podcast with me, Danny Kelly. I'm delighted to say, former Crystal Palace owner, he likes to say chairman, these days one of the leading pundits, both print, radio, television, all the rest of it, Simon Jordan. Hi, Simon. Lovely to be here again, Dan. Now, of course, those of you who've been listening to the whole series of this podcast know that we're dealing with the seven deadly sins. And we've done over the past seven weeks all the ones that the Bible sets out as no less an authority than the Bible sets out as the seven deadly sins. But we wanted to move on, actually. And over the next two weeks, we're going to do the things that both Simon and I think are sins deeply embedded in the game of football. And the last week, we'll probably do some kind of Twitter poll and let you choose the sin that you want us to talk about. Now, Simon, of course, and I are virtually as pure as the driven snow. We don't <laughs> commit any of these sins. We only comment on others doing them. Absolutely right. So this is my choice this week. The sin of mendacity. That is lying or deceit or propaganda. And we believe that the game is awash with it. And so welcome aboard. Enjoy the next half hour or so as we discuss the eighth deadly sin of football, which is mendacity. But part of their job, to some extent, is they do have to have an element of lying and prostitution in their locker. Oh my God, he's added prostitution, added prostitution, to prostitution it into it. Graham was a manager of Southampton. Wasn't it meant to be George Weir's cousin or something? Here's the story. And this is in the Premier League, by the way, certainly the top league of English football. This is an enthusiastic amateur at best. And poor Graham is forced after about 20 minutes to substitute the substitute. Danny, do you not think that's a bit of a fib? Because there's times when we have discussions mm-hmm. on other formats and I have a little dig about Spurs and you're straight up out of your chair about what Spurs is and what Spurs isn't. Last week we did the sin of gluttony and we asked you who you thought was guilty of the sin of gluttony. I thought we'd get lots of answers about players owning stupid cars, watches that you could land a light aircraft on and all the rest of it. No, actually, and I guess because of the who ate all the pies mentality in football, you've just gone for people who are a bit fat. Let's be honest about that. As a person who's uh, slightly uh, over-upholstered myself, I have to look at these with care. Luke Shaw, poor old Luke Shaw, Ben. 174 on Twitter has gone straight for the Manchester United left back. Much more, I think, measurably possibly guilty of the sin of gluttony has been brought out by Connor Giltrap, who's at Connor Giltrap on Twitter, who reminds us of the great centre half Steve McNulty. Steve was not only chubby, but he also had grey hair, so he looked like some bloke had wandered out onto the pitch by accident, but man, he could play. And this one, I think, is slightly unfair. This is a uh, Isley, Isley Buryatson on Twitter. What about Flabby at Bonlahore? Meaning, of course, referring to Gabby at Bonlahore. And he shows a picture of Gabby with his shirt suggesting that maybe there's one or two pounds more than you'd expect on the fittest of professional footballers. But you have to be careful about this because, as we said last week, Simon, fans are always keen to call players fat and all the rest of it. And it reminds me of the story of when the great David Ginola went to Aston Villa where John Gregory, John Gregory was managing. Right, yeah, I remember that. And John Gregory left David Ginola and said he wasn't really fit enough for Aston Villa. He implied that he was carrying a few extra pounds. They play a game... David's on the bench. At the last few minutes, he's brought on as a substitute. He then lamps the ball in from an adjacent postal district, as he's wont to do, runs over to the bench, takes off his shirt and poses. His body is like a Greek statue, whereas mine's like a Greek restaurant. His is like a Greek statue. Every bit of his six to eight pack is available. And he's just pointing out to poor old John Gregory that uh, he was not guilty of the sin of gluttony and that John Gregory was perhaps telling an untruth, which brings us to this week's sin. 
Simon, I'm going to start with one of the biggest lies I think that I get told all the time. You can tell me whether you think it's yeah. true or not. And that is the piece of propaganda that pours out of every orifice of the Premier League. Quote, it is the greatest league in the world. How can it be the greatest league in the world where it appears to be destroying all the other football in this country? Well, I think the truth of the fact that it's the greatest league in the world is that it has taken football, domestic football, to another level, certainly from a broadcast perspective. But you're quite right to say that on the other side of the equation, which is the responsibility that it has in the UK to look after the other 72 football clubs in the pyramid system and to attach some value to it, is exactly that. It is a lie to say that the Premier League is the greatest league in the world because it doesn't have that level of responsibility in its own thinking. The flip side, again, is, of course, that it has advanced our game, it's advanced our proposition around the world, so it's a difficult one to balance up, oh, because it, it, go, it, it, it it's a sheep in wolf's clothing. You could say, for someone like me, who so admires the pyramid, the fact that over 50 clubs have now been through the Premier League yep. is amazing and brilliant, but, of course, as soon as you are relegated, and I think it happened to you, yep. you are abandoned you are literally you're literally thrown into the outer darkness they don't give a monkeys about you anymore the parachute payments in some ways only complicate it because i assume you end up using all that to pay off the players who don't want to play in the lower leagues well yes i mean ultimately yes i mean it is a lie that players will come and sign for your football club play with your football club and then be relegated with you and take the consequences of their actions because they won't more often than not when they sign for you they don't have relegation clauses in their contracts anymore because you can't attract them so you'll be paying them the kind of wages that you've paid them in the Premier League will find their way into the Championship with a significant reduction in the revenues that you get, even with parachute payments. But ultimately, the Premier League has one single commodity at its centre. And it is, in some ways, with a lot of the nonsense in football that I've experienced, which was politics and small-minded thinking outside of the Premier League, there is something that makes the Premier League the greatest and doesn't make it necessarily a lie, which is its one and only function in life is the pursuit of as much money as it can possibly get. Now, the lie that comes in there and afterwards is, as we've just discussed, is what it does with that money and the value it attaches to anything else that is around it. So, insofar as it's a lie, it is a lie. Insofar as it has a different side to it, obviously the points that we're both making about the opportunity that the Premier League has created for the highlighting of English domestic football has been quite significant. And if you take it beyond the domestic game, um, you could argue as well that the massive success of the Premier League has started to destabilise not just the Championship, League One and League Two, but other leagues around Europe. Totally. I mean, ultimately, if you look at the campaign that's been uh, waged by Andre Agnelli at Juventus and Javier Tibas at La Liga about the increasing of the Champions League configuration. This is all about the success of the Premier League. This is all about the success of the Premier League. It's about the bridging of the gap. It's not about, it's a lie to say it's about anything else from these countries. They're trying to suggest also that the Premier League has done other things that it hasn't actually done. You know, the idea that the audaciousness of Javier Tibes, who is the, as I say, the Spanish head of La Liga, to turn around and say that the Premier League clubs have (laughs) changed the transfer system to the worst. It is the Premier League clubs that have made transfers so ridiculously expensive when it seems to have escaped his notice. Three or four of the biggest transactions, in fact, the biggest transactions, have originated from clubs under his jurisdiction in Spain. And and I will use the local language. He's got some cojones to to suggest that, hasn't he? Absolutely. Is it the media's fault? Is it people like me and you putting too much pressure on them? But why can't football managers 
ever tell the plain, unadorned truth. Now, I'm letting Chris Wilder of Sheffield United off here because at the moment, that's his shtick, isn't he? He yeah. comes out and speaks with alarming honesty. But on the other end of the scale, you've got poor old Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who, as we speak, is still Manchester United manager. And again, after another awful display, whatever about the result, because, you know, results come and go in football, but yeah. performance is everything, against Newcastle, he came out and said, well, I think we're making progress and I see it. And that wasn't as bad as people are going to make out. Why can't they just tell the truth, Simon? I think there are two versions of the truth. I think there's a version that we see as people that are looking at it with authentic sets of eyes. And there are also the versions of the truth that the game and the people within the game see. Now, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is in an invidious position because he has a group of players that play for the world's largest a most significant club in my view, not mm. necessarily in performance terms right now. And I know that the fans of Madrid and Barcelona and Bayern Munich and everywhere else will be howling with derision. But they're that in that conversation and they're strongly in that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about management of people's expectations. It's all about, you know, I've often described football as through the looking glass. What is black is white, what is up is down because you see it with your own two eyes. You know, you can see that that's not good enough. Yet a football manager will come out and try to convince you for a variety of reasons. One of them is because that's part and parcel of the way that they've been introduced, that they should be thinking that ultimately everything should be positive and that people should only hear the upside of things even when the upside isn't there. It's also about the culture of players, in my view, and I'd be interested to hear yours in a second, mm, yeah. about can't be told the truth. They can't be told the truth because they can't take the truth. They can be told the truth when it's good, but they can't be told the truth when it's bad. But I also think there's an element of self-preservation in the whole set of thinking when managers come out and try to justify the unjustifiable rather than just come out and say that was simply not good enough or that was utter garbage. Managers at the top of the pyramid seem to feel that that's something they can't do. Chris Wilder is a different dynamic because Chris Wilder is coming up through the ranks with Sheffield United. It's a different size club and there's a different mentality around it. Now, two or three years' time, I'm willing to wage you if Sheffield United stay in the Premier League, there'll be a morphing of the way that Chris Wilder represents what is in front of our suddenly eyes. suddenly he will have better quality, higher paid and better represented yep. players. And you're right to ask me about what it is about professional footballers. Almost, I guess, with possible exception of the legal profession, the only profession in which you can take no criticism whatsoever. I mean, it is absolutely bizarre. I guess I know partly it's to do with the market. You know, if manager X doesn't fancy you, you can go to another club and manager Y will tell you that you are the Business, dog's dangly yeah, bits. Yeah. Absolutely. And the ants' ankles, whatever <laughs> insect part that you are. But I think that is unbelievably damaging, not just for the game, because, you know, who cares really if it's just footballers hiding, football managers hiding the truth. But for the individuals involved, Simon, they grow up in a state of permanent childhood. Yep. Now, look, you have a daughter, but I'm sure you tell her the rea Absolutely. realistic things. But also you, you hide some unpleasant truths from her till sure. she's old enough, until she's old to, enough to, to understand, to understand them, yeah. sure. Yeah. But you wouldn't want to sugarcoat her life to such an extent that she became emotionally stulted and stunted. And I think that's what happens with footballers. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to what's told to young footballers from the point where they land in your academy and manifest themselves in your first team if their careers have gone the way they want to, it is all about only preparing them for the acceptance of success or more to the point, constantly reaffirming or reconstituting the fact that they are the best things in life. But now I'm all for, you tell people positive things. If you want positive outcomes, absolutely. But I'm also more for 
authenticity because I think it breeds character. And if the only thing you can hear is good things, then you're never going to be prepared for adversity. And that is part of the reasons why I believe that there's a lack of leaders and a lack of characters in football because when it comes to adversity, look at your lot at Tottenham. Mm. Look at some of the clubs that are struggling at this moment in time, Everton and a few other clubs that are going through a difficult period. You know, we saw Newcastle recently and their manager, Steve Bruce, a friend of mine, having to probably dig very deep in his locker. And it only seems to be when there's an absolute crisis on hand that people have their minds concentrated. So I feel that it's inherent and emblazoned in the culture of football that you can't tell people the truth because they can't take the truth. And when you see people like us, Danny, and we do our broadcasts, whether we're doing it through a podcast or television or radio, people listen sometimes because they hear something that's authentic and they know that we mean it. Ultimately, a lot of people in football don't talk that way. In some ways, whatever, and thank you for saying that, whatever uh, over the years, whatever reputation I've got gained for trying to tell the truth, part of it is because, Simon, I've never wanted to be in the world of football. I have no friends in the world of yep. football, unless you count yourself, and you're a peripheral figure these days Indeed. to the world of football. Back in the day when Tottenham would say to me, why don't you come and sit in the West Stand? Because I used to have my seats in the popular side. They would say, but you can have the expensive seats for nothing. I need to be able to say what I want to say about Tottenham Hotspur. I can't be beholden to them. No, me too. And I had the same thing within the confines of football when I was actually in it, whether I was at the Premier League or whether at Championship or Football League meetings. I mean, I always told the truth even when I was lying. And I had this propensity to have a very strong strident point of view. And it wasn't received very well because football has a whole raft of myths that you and I have discussed, that I've written about and talked about, dispelling the myths, the idea that the dressing room is an inner sanctum. No, it's not. It's a place where people get changed and every now and again, somebody comes up with a Churchillian speech. Probably less often than you think. Yeah, (laughs) football managers will sit in interviews telling you that they'll spend your money the same way they'd spend it if it was theirs and they don't, they couldn't care less. So the whole industry is predicated upon a series of misrepresentations with the idea of advancing their own opportunity rather than being a collective unit. That's what I found through my time in football was this, the very people that you thought would be in your corner were the very people that you spent more of your time fighting with and battling with. You were supposed to be battling other teams, the opposition, the other fans and segments of the media, when actually the ones that let you down the most were your own bloody charges and the people that you were looking after and supposed to be looking after you. You know how much I admire American football in many of the ways in which it's run. I love the fact that their press conferences, the press ask for, after a game, who they want, and those players are obliged and the coaches are obliged. They're asked very direct questions and... 90% of the time, they get very, very direct answers back. This weekend, we've had an example, though, where a player who was supposed to be done to dominate the game actually ended up on the losing side. He didn't turn up at a press conference. Big trouble coming for him. But it was an amusing moment. And when you can go too far with the truth, one of the quarterbacks, it doesn't matter which one it was, one of the journalists said, but hang on, when you got intercepted there... Was that because your throw was underthrown? And the quarterback went into three and a half minutes of explanation of the one move, this one play they were going to get into, and how because one of the runners got three or four yards out of position, like a clock falling apart from within. Each cog affected each one. By the end of it, the journalists were making a mental note, never ask him again, (laughs) never ask him again, because he'll tell you the truth about it. And of course, what they wanted was a story that said, yes, I should have thrown that ball, but it was down to me. What they got was the technical reason why the whole thing had fallen down. Clever lad. I would love, I would love, 
I would love just once a manager to explain his tactics to me properly. The only time we ever seen or saw a whiteboard was when Bielsa was explaining about, about, yeah, about, about the drone. Yeah, <laughs> to be Spike fair, it, yeah. we just don't get that, do we? The reputations of managers, I don't know whether they're lies, I don't know whether, but they're definitely propaganda. Marco Silva is in the crosshairs just now, so we'll concentrate on him if you like. But you must have interviewed dozens of coaches for jobs at Crystal Palace, and you must know a million of these stories. And look, it's not it's not the high jump. Everybody fails in the end. That's how the game yep. works. Managers all fail in the end. Even Jose Mourinho fails in the end. They shouldn't be ashamed of it. It's what you do when things are going well yep. that counts. And yet, I think I look at hundreds of managers, and because of the lies that you have to be an ex-player, yep. you have to be a certain kind of personality, yep. and all the rest of it, I think we're narrowing down the kind of people. But just talk to me about it for a moment, then. What is it that establishes a real reputation for a manager and are the rest of them all just making up as they go along i think what establishes a reputation for a manager is a body of work of course and a propensity to deliver on what you say you are the sort of ron seal effect you can look at sam allardyce and say there's not a lot of lying behind sam because he is what he is you know and what you get with sam allardyce is what you get fireman sam but in the instances of when you're interviewing managers i always tried very hard to try and get past the bluster and the bs that goes with your preconceived perception of them the fact they exist in another incarnation as a player the fact that other people advocate them and their agents are telling you that they're the best thing since sliced bread then they wander through the door and they will look at you and try and have already worked out what kind of person you are and then they'll steer the conversation into the narrative that they think will sell them into you and it will start with the myth or the lie that they will as I said a moment ago that they'll spend your money as if it were theirs and that they want to work in an inclusive fashion that the chairman is very much involved in Collegiate, their thinking yeah, cooperative. And, and, you know, and ultimately that they're going to play in a certain way and then they'll go and do exactly what they want. I had many examples of it. I mean, specifically and explicitly Trevor Francis. You know, when Trevor was interviewed by me, he'd come in on the back of Steve Bruce telling me a great big pack of fibs that he wanted to stay at Crystal Palace and then running off to Birmingham at the first opportunity. You've forgiven him, though. I have very much so. And because, because, because you and I, one reason we wanted to do Mendasty, for whatever reason, you and I have arrived at a place in life where I can deal with almost any quirk of another human being because we're all quirky and we're yep. all imperfect in different yep. ways. But lying... My dad was always the one who told me this, Danny, anything else, but don't lie to me. Yeah, I, because I, if you're lied to, all your responses are thrown yeah. out of whack, See, aren't they? I've always believed, Danny, everything everyone tells me until they tell me a lie, and then I never believe another word they say. So it's very important, from my vantage point, if you're going to lie, Mark's will make it a meaningful one, because yeah. it's going to be the end of our relationship. <laughs> but with people like Trevor, Trevor would walked into the job, and he inherited a management team, which was Steve Kember and Terry Bullivant, that had been very successful under Steve Bruce, got us at the top of the league, and one of the insistences that I had was that Trevor took on Steve Kemba and Terry Bullivant as part of his team. Trevor, in wanting the job, absolutely categorically told me that wasn't a problem and then spent the next 18 months Telling doing you. his level best to get rid of them as much as he possibly could, loathed the ground that they walked on and pretty much went the exact opposite way of working with them than I had originally anticipated. But, you know, managers will operate in a certain way. But part of their job, to some extent, is they do have to have an element of lying and prostitution in their locker. Oh my God, he's added prostitution, added prostitution to it, now. Into it yeah. Because there is an element of managers having to get from players what they need. You'll speak to managers candidly and, and openly at times and they'll tell you about players and they'll tell you how they feel about players, that players are selfish and all for themselves and couldn't care less about anybody else. Of course, a manager 
having been a former player, would be able to say that more frequently than perhaps a, an owner that hasn't been one. And then they'll spend their time then doing the exact opposite with the players, saying that they're the best thing since sliced bread. So I do understand certain aspects of why there is a culture inside football that needs to be a little bit misrepresentative. No, no, of course, because anyone who's run any group of people or a team or a business, or in this case, a football club, you know that if you have any responsibility, it don't need to be for number one, if you have any kind of responsibility, there's an insatiable appetite from below for information and you can't supply all of the information all the time. Do you think, I mean, you've, you've been around the dressing rooms and the managers. I often wonder, and again, you know, I've been around football all my life and I don't know, still don't know the answer. These managers that we've been talking about who will come out and lie through their teeth to yeah. the press about what's going on, do they tell the players the truth in private and say, don't worry, I'm going to go out there and I'll defend you, but let's be understood here that I think you're useless, you're useless, and that was a terrible display. Yes and no. I think they operate in a certain way in the public. Mourinho was very guilty or very adept, I should say, having two faces, one for the media and one for off-camera and behind the scenes. I think, of course, again, I use the word literally, but without meaning, there's an element of prostitution of a manager's character because they do have to look at things in a certain way and they do have a especially if you're you know if you're further down the pyramid outside of the Premier League where you don't have an endless supply conveyor belt of opportunities to buy players managers will find then the need to be representative of one thing to one individual and another to another but this subject is the perfect subject for someone like me because I think I'm the only one that's ever taken a manager to the high court for lying and getting him <laughs> convicted of fraud in, in Ian Dowie it's right in my swing zone look lying Uh, white lies and blatant lies and outright lies and misrepresentations are all part of this business and the two of the biggest commodities in sport are money and gossip and with gossip comes misrepresentation and lies and that is at the heart of football whether it's agents saying to you that you know I've got this player that's worth something to you or more saliently agents negotiating a deal for their client and then convincing you that you've been their client and that you have to pay them so it kind of pervades every aspect of football everything's hung together by a series of untruths there are very few examples I think and you might be able to help me with this where you can say that was an outright lie now obviously when Southampton signed that fella Ali Dia now for the younger listeners forgive us about 20 years ago when Graham Souness was yeah. a good man Graham was a manager of Southampton Wasn't Maybe George Weir's cousin or something. Here's the story. Yeah. They were having an absolute striker crisis. Everybody at the club uh, who could uh, get the ball across the line was unfit. And in the middle of the day comes a phone call purporting to be George Weir saying, listen, I understand you've got a problem. Uh, my, my cousin is called Ali Deer. He's a real good player and he's in the country. And Graham told me the story himself. He said, so we got this fellow there. And in training, he was enthusiastic and ran around, but we didn't know because was, this was two days before a league match. And so they put him on the bench. That's probably uh, the first like, because Graham probably wasn't that training to see him. They put him on the bench, as everyone from that era knows. Um, Southampton then had another injury or what fell behind, and they put Ali Deer on the pitch. And then, and this is in the Premier League, by the way, certainly the top league of English football, it becomes clear that this is an enthusiastic amateur, at best, somebody who has never really kicked a football at professional level in any way, shape or form. And poor Graham is forced, after about 20 minutes, to substitute Mm, the substitute. substitute. So that was a straightforward lie. Other than when yourself and Ian Dowie got into it, can you have a member of any other examples? You've just been told a straightforward lie about a footballer 
or a manager, he's great, or maybe maybe you've, you've allowed them all to disappear into the forgiving past now. Yeah, a little bit of that, but a lot of it was more to do with vested interest being served out and people saying things because there was an inherent benefit for them. You know, ultimately, a lot of the things that I was told by agents turned out to be very disingenuous or duplicitous and sometimes outright lies. And again, a lot of things that were said by managers. I know that managers have one view of the relationship they should have with their owner and then another view to their own staff of what they think and what they don't think. And there's been many a time when I've sat there in boardrooms with very influential people, Man United managers and, and other people of that nature sat there that in the public eye are saying these players are wonderful in the boardroom whilst drinking a scotch are saying I'm not, those effing sods can wait on the bus because they've ruined my weekend sort of attitude. And it just reverberates around football. The difference between lying and malicious lies is the real area where I sort of gain impetus or irritation or a sense of outrage about the way that football treats people that either support it patronise it, fund it or administer it because there is a lot of nonsense going on in football, a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of double standards and at the centre of it are people lying and misrepresenting and manipulating and it's always for their own individual benefit rather than the well-being of the so-called football club that they are employed by or kiss the badge of or whatever else they do. Another big lie that I want to nail today is the increasingly heard phrase from not the owners themselves, but the coterie who surround owners, you know, the idea that fans don't matter anymore. This started when the television deal started to become ever increasingly huge and people worked out that as a percentage of clubs' earnings, um, the people schlepping through the gates and giving up their 30, 40, 50 quid, whatever it is, God, I'm going back 15 years now, 60, 70, 80 quid, whatever it is, that they're no longer important. That's just not true, is it? Well, it's not true on a variety of fronts. The idea that fans pay players' wages is not quite as it once was. We used to sit in a pub and fans would tell you that they pay a player's wages or they'd pull a player saying, what are you doing in the pub because I pay your wages, has diminished. But the idea that fans are not a key component of a football club and don't help fund a football club is laughable because if you look at the makeup, for example, let's go to Arsenal, specifically and explicitly. This is the club that generates the world's biggest gate receipts of £120 pounds a year if you're an Arsenal fan you might think about taking them up to the Trade Descriptions Act for for, for goods not fit for purpose but ultimately if you look at that and say how can 120 million not be in some part funding the football club funding the opportunity of course the fact that the fans are the heartbeats of a football club they are the thing that makes it hang together that gives it the cohesion the meaning the impetus the energy the emotion because without it you've got nothing you've got a lifeless sport and you don't have that you can see what's happening in the world championships of the of athletics whilst it is a phenomenal event I watched it on Saturday and watched the, the 4x100 relays and saw these wonderful athletes playing amazing race you know, yeah. performing in half empty stadiums and what it must do to them because everything in sport is about emotion so fans from that point of view then if you move on from expanding whether they're emotion providers the idea that financially they aren't the drivers of football clubs why do you think 
people are giving Manchester United £75 million a year or Liverpool to make their shirts because they're going to sell them to the so-called fans that don't fund football clubs. Why do you think that the shirt sponsors are paying XYZ or whoever else wants to be attached to a football club because it's all about eyes on the prize and the eyes belong to the audience of the people that are supposedly not funding the football club but the fans. And I've always thought that there's an element of respect that the game doesn't offer up to its fans. There's a value of fans that only suits the game when they're getting back from the fans what they want in terms of fans not seeing things for what they are, i.e. calling out things that are inconsistent, calling out managers for not doing their job. Sometimes, albeit I don't agree with this a lot of the time, fans having a very robust opinion about owners. Sure. You know, and Not because I'm part of the owners' union, because I think sometimes it's a little bit ludicrous and too much of it's being... being well, no, no, fans have got their own problems as well. You know, the expectation levels have been driven insane by 24-hour media, True. by... 360-degree coverage. Yeah. And, and also by a society where only success... And tangible success is acceptable. You see the adverts from male deodorants in which you know, Hollywood actors say, yep. I'm a man of success. What does that even mean? Because you can have a perfectly good life without being the number one thing in your field. Because you right. try hard, absolutely have right. integrity, feed your family. That's a form of success. I, absolutely, I think that's absolutely right, Danny. I've always, when I used to go around with Palace and talk to schools and talk to school kids, I used to talk about winning. And sport has this thing about winning. You know, winning's everything. Even I actually put that up as the logo on our academy buildings and on the first team buildings at Beckenham where Palace still yeah. train now but you know what, what I used to say to the school kids as a sort of contradiction winning isn't about being the very best it's about giving your best yeah. that's the real idea behind winning because ultimately if you give your best then it will always be good enough because you'll be achieving from your life the full length and breadth of your capabilities which takes us to the next great lie and I don't know how this came about because when I was a youth, and so we're all right, I'm looking backwards here, forgive me for that. You supported your club and you didn't wonder, you didn't worry whether it was, quote, a bigger club than Club X up the road or Club Y down the lane. And now it's a real. Yeah. What is going on with this thing about who is a big club and who isn't? Because, look, we all know, let's take Newcastle United, for instance. As soon as you say they're a very interesting club in regionally dominant and right in the middle of their city and they, they're part of the culture of that city and all the rest of it but as soon as you don't say and they're a really big football club outrage. you're eaten alive uh, outrage I mean what, what in your mind Simon makes what defines what is the characteristics and the badge of a big club well I think you can see them and you can smell them and feel them the idea that say for example Newcastle just because you've raised that point mm -hmm. is a big club yes and I say it often Newcastle is a big club in Newcastle. But when you look at a big club, there's a vast difference between somebody that thinks they're a big club. I thought Crystal Palace was a big club. And I thought I would be able to build Crystal Palace from this carcass that I inherited back into the Premier League, which I achieved, and also ultimately to become a club that could compete with what is a big club, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, your team mm, at Spurs sure. but specifically and explicitly Manchester United and Liverpool to me are the definition of big clubs of because of the time when you grew up but also because yeah. there's something about the very nature and the very feel of these clubs so when I had Palace there I realised after about five or six years that there is a natural level unless you're going to you're going to do something like Manchester City and perhaps Chelsea have done, although Chelsea, you could say, have already had the heritage to some extent. I, I don't know if they did or not, really. They definitely I, made a quantum leap. Since yeah, they they've got made the huge leaps, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and money's bridged that gap. But there's something about the fabric and feel of clubs like Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, 
if you go into Holland, you probably say uh, IX Fine, IX, PSV, yeah, Fine PSV, absolutely. But they're and not the, William Tway and not no, WW Venlo, uh, absolutely. Or, or the club that uh, FC Twant wasn't it? That um, twenty, yeah, twenty that yeah. Uh, Steve McLaren famously managed and won the title and won the title, a magnificent achievement. And, you know, and there's something about this need for people to qualify things as a big club when really and truly there are only a certain amount of big clubs. And we can all sit there and close our eyes and be very, very unimpartial about the ideas that we have for our club. But there are only two or three big clubs in this country. And again, uh, deep in your heart, you've got to not worry about what other people, how they measure your club. As you know, the club I happen to support, Tottenham Hotspur, have had probably their worst week for... Seven or eight years, yep. maybe a decade. Murdered at home in the Champions League. Their record ever home defeat after 135 years. Then they go away to Brighton, of all places. And I say that because you're a Palace fan. And get murdered again. And I'm not worried about what other people think about it. <laughs> what do I care what you think? I mean, truthfully. Support Crystal Palace. Do you or not, or Danny, do you not think that's a bit of a fib? Because there's times when we have discussions mm-hmm. on other formats and I have a little dig about Spurs and you're straight up out of your chair about what Spurs is and what Spurs isn't. That's so part, it goes beyond the yeah. pale of, okay, I don't care yeah. what you think. No, that's I, the, you do. That's the conversational. I'm, I'm paid to talk to you in those forums. All so. right, okay. I'll take that at face value. <laughs> okay. I hate to bring this up because it's complicated. I wonder whether VAR is now becoming a subject of white lies. And what I mean by that is, Simon, and again, I'd be interested in your opinion. I'm not, I'm not thrusting my opinion down your throat. Is that we're getting to the stage where I'm starting to suspect, and I was a huge supporter of it, still am, that the referees and the people in Stockley Park are not quite as unattached and quite devoted to the right decision as I hoped they would be. Because how many times mm-hmm. do we now... Yeah, I, I, what I mean by that is they rarely overturn the decision that the referee has given. Now, we have seen them occasionally say, hang on, you missed something, and I yeah. get that. But once the referee has given the decision, it, I mean, I would say the, the penalty that Liverpool got the other day for their last-minute winner against Leicester, if that hadn't been given by the referee, VR would have looked at it and have said, ah, there was a bit of contact, but mm. no foul. But once he's given the foul, they have somehow got themselves into a mind place in the referee's mind hive, where they're not going to change that. I think that's a small amount of talking about the right decision, but maybe even lying to themselves, that they what they're actually doing here is supporting the referees a bit more than they need to be. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but my view on VAR is the lie that it is being universally embraced and accepted by the football fraternity. It feels a bit like Brexit. It feels a little bit like that there's a reluctance to accept the outcome of... Well, there's not a reluctance, there's a bleeding straightforward stance. The Remain group of voters don't want to accept the fact that we voted to leave the European Union. On the argument that I'm advancing, I think football is gurning its way through accepting VAR whilst at every possible opportunity is taking the opportunity to ridicule it. If you look at the conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago about players doing celebratory dances, your mob actually, and ridiculing the ideals of VAR. If you listen to managers now, the lie is that ultimately they wanted to see a more efficient set of referees. They're now seeing a more efficient set of systems to be able to support the referees. And now the gig is, we'll attack VAR. So the idea that football managers want absolute integrity and authenticity in decision making, they do. But only when it suits them. (laughs) 
Thank you very much indeed for that. Next week, we're going to be doing another deadly sin. It is the sin of dishonour. But for now, you've been listening to the Marathon Bet podcast with Simon Jordan and me, Danny Kelly. And we've been discussing the murky, interlinking world of propaganda, of lies, of mendacity. Coming up, we're going to be picking our sinners of the week to go into our sin bin. But first is our charity bet. Based on overrounds versus all bookmakers on home, draw, away, pre-match markets on oddchecker.com, which bookmaker was the best-priced 34 out of 38 weeks in the Premier League last season? Marathon Bet. That's right. Before you bet, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best-priced. Join today at marathonbet.co.uk because better odds mean bigger winnings. For more info, visit marathonbet.co.uk slash landing slash oddschecker. Marathon Bet operates in Great Britain under the Gambling Commission Licence. 18 plus begamblerware.org excludes Northern Ireland. Welcome once again now to the part of the programme where the good people at Marathon Bet allow myself and Simon to use some of their money to make bets that will eventually, and I say eventually, lead to money going to to chosen charities, favourites of myself and Simon. I say eventually because we're just proving no good. All we've got to do is to pick three results. Get the three results right. Three? This is the smallest accumulator in history, isn't it? It's a treble. I know, I know how the betting thing works. Anyway, joining us from Marathon Bet this week is uh, Dean Cronk. First of all, congratulations on your debut here on the Marathon Bet podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Good to be here. Hopefully <laughs> I'm going to be your lucky charm and get you the win. Well, it's an international week, uh, of course, this week. And Simon, you've chosen first to, uh, I think, uh, a game involving Holland and Northern Ireland. No, I've chosen a game between Slovakia and Wales. Okay, I'll, uh, fine. Well, what do you think the results that going to be? Then? I'm going to. I'm going to go you supercilious. Git. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted you to go down the road of making uh, sure that you got the right game there, matey boy, as you often correct me. Mm-hmm. Listen, I just think there's if Gareth Bale's fit, that Wales will have a chance to win this game. I'd like to see them win. I'd like to see Wales get themselves back into focus as they once were two or three years ago of the European Championship. So I'm going to go for Wales winning that game. Actually, uh, you're right. I chose the other two, and it's games where the home nations are. Away from home, and I'm afraid I don't give them much hope. Scotland have already lost to Russia in Scotland. I think the Russians will beat Scotland and Northern Ireland, who have had a brilliant start to the tournament and really punch above their weight. But they'll be running slap bang into a Holland side that in the last 18 months has transformed itself from a laughing stock into the one of the best teams in the world. So, Dean Cronk, um, <laughs> Cronky, if I might call you that, the old Cronkster, the Cronkatola, what are the odds on those three results happening? So, Netherlands to beat Northern Ireland is 15 to 93 and as you said Danny Northern Ireland have made a really good start to their group they're second in the qualifying Netherlands are third but Netherlands have got a game in hand so I think it's good value in the Netherlands beating Northern Ireland as you said second game Russia to beat Scotland Russia to win is 49 to 100 yeah I agree I think Russia good value to win they've won their last five games and we saw at the World Cup how strong Russia can be at home and finally, Simon, your pick, Wales to beat Slovakia away from home is 113 to 50. Now, Wales away from home haven't won in almost a year to the day against Ireland, so it wasn't far for them to travel either. Slovakia are second in the group, but I agree, I think the Welsh superstars like Bale and Ramsey, if they turn up, they can definitely beat Slovakia in their own backyard. And the total for that, Danny, will return you from a £20 bet, £112.82 for your chosen charities. And prices are accurate at the time of recording. Thank you very, very much there to Dean Cronk. 
now the part of the show that I know you all can't wait for when we have to select people to put into the sin bin. As you know, each week we've done a different deadly sin. We're onto our own one this week in the form of mendacity, and we've had to put somebody into the sin bin. This one, Simon, is one of the ones where I think they'll least want to be in it because no one likes to be called a liar That's right. or a cheat or a propagandist. Do you want me to go first or will you? I'm going to go first, I think. Yeah. Given the fact that we've spent a little bit of this show talking about Newcastle and the idea that they live the lie that they're a big club, I'm going to take an even bigger swipe at them because their manager that departed recently, Rafa Benitez, I think... is Saint Rafa Benitez. Saint who walks on water, mm-hmm. he does, you know. I feel that his whole modus operandi is about himself and has represented and managed to hoodwink or managed to hoodwink the Newcastle fans to believing that he actually was desperate to be at Newcastle it was the place he wanted to be rather than what we all know it really was which was a gateway opportunity for Rafa Benitez to re-establish himself back within the confines of English football and has given him an opportunity to get £12 million a year somewhere else in China so so I'm going to put Rafael Benitez the waiter in my sin bin for being a person guilty of mendacity Okay, well, I'm going to go for people who make up fouls, i.e. divers. And in order to uh, change the debate a little bit, so because uh, we all know that the forwards are always getting uh, blamed for this, this week I'm going to put in the sin bin somebody who I saw this weekend do a defensive dive. It was incredible. In the game between Southampton and Chelsea, Chelsea were defending their goal. Jorginho, their midfield player, is doing much better this season than he did last. Jorginho was challenging for a ball in the air with one of Southampton's players. He got the slightest touch. Now, it's the sort of thing you see strikers falling to the ground, pleading to the referee. In fact, they got their arms out wide, pleading to the referee before they've hit the dirt. But Jorginho concocted this fantastic swan dive from a tiny bit of contact from one of Southampton's attacking players and was given a free kick out of his own penalty area. It was the best example I've seen for many, many years of the defensive dive. And therefore, for that little white lie on the football pitch, I'm putting Jorginho into our sin bin. And he, of course, will be an excellent player when we come to pick our sin bin 11 at the end of the series. And so that's it for this week's Marathon Bet podcast with Simon Jordan and myself, Danny Kelly. Thank you all for listening. Simon, thank you for being here. Pleasure, as always. Still got a couple more shows of this series to do. Of course, there'll be other series, such as being the worldwide success of this. Or is that a little white line itself? This week, <laughs> we've been doing Mendacity. Next week, join us again on the podcast. We'll be doing The Sin of Dishonour. Marathon Bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus, begambleaware.org.